0: You would go ahead and open your Bibles to James chapter one. And I promise you today we'll get beyond one verse. We might do two verses. Uh, This morning, as you can tell by the title of the message, Counted All Joys, we talk about trials and difficulties. I want to prepare you for the invitation at the end. And so uh, I'm going to encourage you if you're going through a trial and, and you need prayer. Uh, I'm going to encourage you at the end of the service, we're going to have our our staff and our staff wives uh, up here at the front, if you would. Uh, I want to encourage you to come and pray. Our our student uh, leaders, I'm going to ask you guys to come up and just stand over here. If any of you students uh, feel the need to come and pray with someone or want somebody to pray for you, I want to encourage you to do that. So I'm preparing you now for that so you'll know when the time comes uh, what to do. Uh, There'll also be time during that invitation if you'd like to come and Talk to one of the pastors about uh, how to trust Christ as Savior, you'll have opportunity to do that as well. But I wanted to prepare you because I want to encourage us to do what Scripture says, and that's to pray for one another. Uh, That's one of the things we can do for one another, is pray for one another, comfort one another. And there's nothing I've found that's more encouraging than to have another brother or sister to to pray for me. And so I want to encourage you with that uh, today. Last week as we began this study of James... Uh, chapter 1 and we entitled this just James the faith that works and already already this morning you've heard mention of that through what George said about uh, the students this weekend about living an authentic faith and that's what James is all about it's about living out our faith before others also in one of the songs we sang live out his word That's what James is all about, living out the Word of God, doing what God has told us to do, making our faith visible, using our faith. Instead of just saying, I'm a believer, look at me, and sitting on a pew, but instead we live out our faith. We let others see it so that Christ might be known by others as they see the faith in us. Now last week we ended very quickly with some application, and those those points of application are there in your bulletin again this morning just so that we can continue on and have, have a little uh, understanding of what this book is about. So we began last week as we talked about James, the just, the half-brother of Jesus. As he referred to himself, remember, he didn't play the Jesus's brother card. He didn't play the I'm a leader in Jerusalem card. He said, I am a slave. I am a bondservant to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he identified himself. And so as we applied that at the end of the message last week, we said, first of all, have we been born again? James writes to believers. So if you're reading this book as a person who doesn't know Christ as Savior, it will make no sense to you. It will have no application in your life. So first and foremost, we have to ask ourselves, have we been born again? Have we repented of our sin and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ? Secondly, we are to examine our lives in light of God's word. We don't compare ourselves to other people, we compare it to the standard. We look at what God's Word says, and that's how we measure our life. Third, we must be willing to obey God no matter the cost. No matter the cost. As as Ed read our scripture this morning, as we've been over the last year going through the book of Acts, uh, Paul said, hey, don't break my heart, I want to do the will of God, I want to go to Jerusalem, even if it means I must die for Christ. He's willing to obey no matter the cost. And fourthly, we must acknowledge and be prepared for the trials of life. Anybody that tells you becoming a Christian means you don't have any more difficulty, you don't have any more trials, is a liar. They don't understand the Word of God. And then finally, we must measure our spiritual growth on the metrics of God's Word, not on anything else. You know, we're, we're real good about comparing ourselves to the person next to us, or comparing ourselves to the person on the other side of the auditorium, or comparing ourselves to the person that we see out in public. So well I'm better than that person. That's not our comparison. That's not our metric. We use the Word of God. We use the life of Jesus to compare ourselves and to understand who we need to be. And so as James, a bond servant. He's writing in, with a perspective of someone who was raised in the home with Jesus. And he's writing with that perspective, telling us how to make sure our faith works. That what we say is backed up by what we do. One who has surrendered his life to Jesus as Lord and as Messiah. But also one, as we learned last week, who was martyred. He was thrown off the pinnacle of the temple and died because of his faith in Christ, because he professed as a good Jew that Jesus, yes, he was the Messiah. But last week, we also were reminded that all of us, all of us are called to be slaves. You said, well, I'm not going to be a slave. Well, I got news for you. You are a slave. Everyone in this room is a slave to someone or something. Listen to what Paul said in Romans chapter 6. And this is just follow-up from last week, so don't count this against me, okay? This doesn't go against my time today. He says, What then are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace by no means? Do you not know that if you present yourselves as obedient to anyone, as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. So we are either a slave to sin or we're a slave to righteousness, but you're a slave this morning to someone or something. So who's gonna be your master? Who's your master today? Is it sin or is it Jesus? You see, this is what what Paul is, the the perspective that that James is writing from. He says, I am a slave unto God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. He had no problem saying, yes, I am a slave to my half-brother, Jesus, who is Lord and Savior, who is God. Who's your master this morning? Now, as we continue let's pick up in James chapter 1 and verse 2 and here we see that when we face trials we need to learn and this is hard folks I know to choose joy over despair when facing trials See, I know some of you have gone through some difficult times this year some of you have faced some trials this year Some of you are in the midst of the trial and the storm right now. And yes, it's easy for me to stand here and say to you, choose joy over despair. What does James say? Verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. First, count it all joy, my brothers. Now this is the first of some 50 imperatives in the book of James. Remember last week we said half of the book of James, half of the verses in James are commands. They're imperatives. They're directives to us. So, this is the first of that more than 50 when he says, Consider or count it all joy. Now, this phrase is uh, consider or count is an accounting term. It means to evaluate. We evaluate our trials. Consider your trials. So, how are we to consider them? How are we to evaluate them? In light of what God's doing, in light of what God wants to do in your life. You see, this does not remove the emotion. You see, just when you're going through a trial, I'm not saying you have to jump up and down and go, yay, trial. Yay, disease. But in our heart, there is joy. Why? Because we understand who is in control. And yes, you, you lose a job, you, you, you get sick, you have a problem, you, you can't handle yourself. And you, am I saying you have to jump up and down? No. Because we go through the emotions of that, we go through grief, we go through loss, but in our hearts, this, there's this joy that is unspeakable. And so what should our first words be when we know we're facing a trial? Well, you've probably learned and I have learned to say, okay, Lord, what do you want to teach me? What do you want to say to me? Your, your, your servant is listening. What are you trying to show me, and how are you going to use this trial in my life to make me more like Christ? And notice he says here, count it all joy. a Joy, this isn't happiness. This isn't the, the emotion of happenstance, that because of circumstances I'm, I'm happy, I'm excited, I'm, I'm joyful. But this is joy that comes from inward. And the scripture describes this joy. This word joy is a word karis. Uh, uh, it comes from the greek, another greek word kera, and this this word this is important for us to understand because of the word charis means grace or gift the word kera is the response the expression of that and so joy is in reality a response then to what to grace joy is our response to the grace of god in our lives and so you can understand how we can have joy because we understand what god has done for us that we did not deserve there's not a person in this room that deserves anything god has done for you in your life in fact what we deserve is what death and hell let's just be frank that's what we deserve None of us deserve heaven, none of us deserve grace, but God in his great love and his great mercy has shown us grace, and we respond to that grace with joy. The scripture tells us that there are several kinds of joy we find in scripture. There is the joy of salvation. What did David say? Let me return to the joy of my, not kingdom, but salvation. In fact, what's interesting is we're to rejoice over our own salvation But the Bible also says we're to rejoice over the salvation of others. Somebody receives Christ as Savior, repents and believes the gospel. What's the next step? Be baptized, right? And when they baptize, that's a celebration. That's an expression of their faith and what's happened on the inside. And when somebody gets baptized, many churches, what do you do? Oh, amen. That's excitement. We ought to be shouting with joy, joy inexpressible because of the salvation. That, what happens when a person is saved, is the greatest miracle of all. It's greater than healing. It's greater than any other miracle. The the miracle of salvation is the greatest miracle of all that we should celebrate and we should get excited about. But also there's the the salvation of others. What did Luke say, or what did Jesus say that I tell you there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner One sinner, I'm sorry, not sinner. one sinner who joins the Baptist church. No, he didn't even say one sinner who believes. Jesus said there's more joy in heaven when one sinner repents. One sinner repents. Some people like to remove repentance from salvation. You can't. There is no salvation apart from repentance. And what's funny is I've heard people quote that verse and say, Jesus said, there's more joy in heaven when one person believes. That's not what it says. Luke chapter 15, it says, when one person, one sinner repents. There's also the joy of God's presence. Psalm 16, 11, the Psalms are, are full of this picture. You will fill me with joy in your presence. There's joy that comes in the presence of the Lord. There's joy for spiritual maturity. Jesus said in John 15, the fullness of joy comes to those who continue in love of Christ. You see, our our spiritual growth and maturity should bring great joy to our hearts. There's also the joy of of deliverance. We find in Acts 12, the servant girl who was overjoyed that God had rescued her, or rescued Peter from prison that she forgot to, to even let Peter in the house. Remember that? She was so excited, she forgot to to let him in. There was joy, so much joy in her heart over the deliverance of of Peter out of prison. Then there's that verse we go to that we're reminded. It's not our wisdom, it's not our knowledge of Scripture, it's the joy of the Lord that is our strength. And so this is the joy that James is talking about. The kind of joy that comes because we have experienced the grace of God in our lives Then notice what he says in verse 2, that when you meet these trials. When you meet trials of various kinds. Not if, he says when. And the word meet there could also be translated to fall into, or to encounter, or to come across. You know, the scripture tells us that we are to expect trials in our life john 16 33 you will find trouble in this world jesus said you don't have to look very far do you you will find trouble in this world acts 14 strengthen the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in faith and saying that through many tribulations you will enter the kingdom of god isn't that exciting you can come to church today and hear that you can expect trials and difficulties 1 Peter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes your way to test you as though something strange was happening to you. In other words, it shouldn't be strange. Don't don't think it's weird that something strange is happening to you. You're entering a, a fiery trial. You should expect it. You should expect it. And then we find in the Old Testament We find the words of one of Job's friends and one of the things they said that was actually true to him as they were a bunch of miserable counselors. No offense counselors, but they were miserable. Uh, Verse 6 of Job chapter 5, for affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. But man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. He goes on to say, as for me, I would seek God and to God whom I'd commit my cause, who does great things, unsearchable, marvelous, and without number. What is he saying? See, trouble comes to us like the sparks that come up from the fire. That's just natural, right? And the sparks come up out of the fire and they just go upward. That's a natural thing. We face trials and we face difficulties because we live in a broken world, a world that is broken because of sin. And because of that, we will face trials. And notice he says of various kinds. Literally, that means multicolored, a variety of kinds, whether it, be, whether it be a job, whether it be a sickness, whether it be a relationship, whether it be persecution. We face trials. Now, I want you to understand something. There is a difference between trials and temptations. And we're going to talk about temptations in a, in a next, next week, about how we deal with temptation. But please understand, there's a difference between trials and temptations. What's interesting is the same word is used for both, but context determines its meaning. Context determines what he's talking about. And so uh, temptation is simply an enticement to sin. A trial is not an enticement to sin. A trial is something that's out of your control, and something that's come your way, a difficulty. But temptation is an enticement to rebel against God. And we'll talk about that next week. I love the way a man by the name of J.B. Phillips, who has a translation of the New Testament, I love the way he describes verse 2. Listen to how he translates it. When all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, my brothers, don't resist them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. Instead of looking at your trials as an intruder into your life to cause harm, look at them as friends that God is going to use to do something in your life. So we understand that trials are inevitable, they're going to happen. We will meet trials. Third, we should know that trials serve a purpose in our sanctification process. You know that we are saved, we are justified when we repent and believe the gospel. We're born again, that's justification. But then the process from that point until glorification, when we go to heaven, is called sanctification. God uses trials in our life to serve a purpose in our sanctification. Verse three and four, for you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, and I love this, lacking in nothing. You see, God has a purpose in using trials in our life. These various kinds of trials we face serve a purpose. Some of the trials that we face are corrective in nature. We find in Psalm 119, David, in talking about the the troubles that he was going through, he, he says this, Beloved, before I was afflicted, That's a trial. That's just a fancy word for a trial. You can say, it's okay to say, I've been afflicted. I was afflicted by pain. I was afflicted by disease. I was afflicted by a problem. He says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word for you are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. What is David saying here? He's saying before, before I was walking in your word, according to your word, I was going through a trial. But obviously something happened, so before he was afflicted, but now he's walking in God's word, in God's ways. You see, sometimes trials God uses to correct us. Also, we know that sometimes trials are preventative. Wouldn't you rather have preventative medicine than have to take medicine for some particular thing? In 2 Corinthians Paul speaking about his thorn in the flesh. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 7. So then, to keep me from becoming conceited. Here's the preventative. To keep me from becoming conceited. What's another word for conceited? Proud. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. No, it wasn't his mother-in-law. A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times a day, he said, I pled with the Lord that he would leave me, it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is what? My grace is sufficient for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What are those calamities? What are those persecutions? What are those insults and weaknesses? What are those? Those are trials. And God used those in a preventative way to protect Paul from arrogance and from pride. Then third, we see that they're unexpected. We saw earlier the word meet means to fall into. It's a passive word. It means that he had nothing to do with it. When James says, when you meet these trials, they're they're trials that are not your fault. You see, that's another problem that we run into is sometimes we are in the midst of a trial because of something we did. Something we said because of sin in our life. We did something that put us in the midst of the trial. That's different, right? We need to be careful about that, that we understand the difference. You see, some people are in trials because of their rebellion against God. And sometimes it's rather than say trial, we ought to say a consequence. There's a consequence when we disobey God. And so we need to understand the difference between those. Fourthly, all of these things should be anticipated. God's going to use them in our life to to bring about steadfastness and maturity but we should anticipate these. Notice he says in verse 3 these trials are there for testing. Why do we test something? To get a result, right? We test or do we test something in order to measure something that we've learned. And so there's a purpose in testing. Now I know some students would say I don't understand the purpose in testing. But there is a purpose behind it. And he tells us right here what that purpose is, to produce steadfastness in our lives. That's what he's trying to do. And God will use these trials to produce it. The word steadfastness is also translated perseverance, meaning the picture of somebody, as we talked about this when we studied Galatians, it's somebody that comes under the weight of something. You're able to bear the weight of something. And he says God will use these to produce steadfastness and endurance in your life it's the idea of carrying a load for a long time it's heroic endurance or staying power it's staying on the right path as we go through the trial knowing that God is trying to produce steadfastness in our lives the second thing we notice here is that you would be complete perfect lacking in nothing so not only do trials, produce, God use them to produce steadfastness, but also to produce maturity, to produce maturity in our lives. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking, in nothing. This is the second imperative, the second command in James. Let steadfastness, really should be translated that you should have steadfastness through the trial. It's a command. Let it have its full effect as a picture of its perfect work. What is that work that you would be complete, that you would be perfect? It's what Paul described in in Colossians chapter 1 as he talked about his goal, his ambition, was to present every man, what? Mature in Christ. You see, that should be our goal as, as leaders within the church, as, as parents, as, as people who make disciples, is our goal is maturity, to help people in the process of maturity. The word complete that's used there has the idea of, of a 360 degree, a three-dimensional, that not just in one area, but every area of our life, every area of our life, there is maturity. You're complete. And then also lacking in nothing. As we think about this picture of, of lacking in nothing, reminded of what, what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5, and, and verse 10. He says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, He Himself, li- listen to this, listen to what God does. He will restore you, He will confirm you, He will strengthen you, and He will establish you after you've gone through the trial. That's the promise of God. Lacking in nothing. You see, folks, maturity just doesn't happen. Maturity is a process that we go through. The same thought of being complete, lacking in nothing is found in God's description of the Word of God, or Paul's description of Timothy of the Word of God, that it will be used to teach you, to correct you, to reprove you, to equip you for every good work, that the man of God might be complete, lacking in nothing, for every good work. You see, this is a picture of maturity. Not only does God use the Word of God to bring about maturity, but He uses trials in our life to bring about maturity. Listen to what Paul said in Romans chapter 5 regarding this. Not only that we rejoice in our sufferings. Well, wait a minute. We're supposed to rejoice in our sufferings? Count it all joy, my brethren. Even Paul affirms this. Knowing that the suffering produces endurance or steadfastness. And endurance produces Character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out to us within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So, you see the process here? That through the process of trials, God will use those trials to produce steadfastness. He'll use it to produce character in our lives. He'll use it then to produce hope in our life. And hope, he says, does not disappoint. So you see, this whole process of maturity is God uses trials to bring us to a place of maturity. Do you think about a trial that you've been through in your life? Was the end result, it it developed some character in your life? We like to throw that word around a lot. Did it produce character in your life? Were you more mature after having gone through that experience than you were before? And some people may say, well, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to handle this. I don't know how to handle the trials. We'll look back at James chapter 1, the next verse in verse 5. Okay. If any of you lack wisdom, there we go. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave in the sea that is driven and tossed about for that person must not suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded or double-souled and unstable in all his ways. You say you're in a trial right now, what, is, what does James say do? Well, he, he doesn't say to go the, here he doesn't say go to the elders of the church, he doesn't say go to the deacons of the church, he doesn't say go to your Sunday school teacher, he says go to God. He doesn't say go to Oprah, he says go to God. He says, he doesn't say go to artificial intelligence. He says, go to God. Go to God. You know, I want to stop right there and, and just give you, we mentioned Job and his sorry counselors. Let me give you a word of caution when you run into somebody going through a trial. I've heard this said, you might have heard it said, you might have said it. One of the lies that now, I have to explain this that we throw around sometimes is God will not give you more than you can handle. Now, some of us have said that. And I've heard people say that at the most unopportune time when somebody is facing a bad, a bad response, a bad answer, a bad report, they say, oh honey, just just understand, God will not give you more than you can handle. Folks, that's not true. You say, well, I I thought God would, why would God give us something more than we can handle? Because he wants you to trust him. He, He gives us more than we can handle so we will look to him and we'll depend on him and not ourselves. You see, if he doesn't give you more than you can handle, then you don't need him, right? You don't need God. If it's more than you can handle. Now, he doesn't give you more than you and him can handle. But we don't play a role in this. We're looking to God. We're trusting him. Please don't say that to somebody that's facing a difficult time. Oh, brother, just listen. You don't have to worry because God will never give you more than you can handle. There's people in this room, you know better. You've been through it. You know God gave you more than you can handle and it caused you to cry out to God. The problem is we don't know how to cry out to God. We want an easy answer. We want an easy fix. You see, verse eight introduces, verse 5 through 8 introduces the next three imperatives that he tells us. He's for, first of all, if you lack wisdom, ask of God. Why do we ask God? Because we lack wisdom. We don't have wisdom. We need the wisdom that God can give. Notice something about this wisdom that he mentions here. It's God who gives it. It's God who gives it. Not a commentary, not a textbook, it's God who gives the wisdom. He gives it also how? Generously. And what else does he do? He gives it, God gives it, he gives it generously, who does he give it to? He says he gives it to all. All who will ask. And then he says not only that, but he gives it without reproach or without finding fault, without saying, you've asked me too many times. Or you should have learned that lesson already. I'm not going to give you any more wisdom because I've given you all you need. So not what he says. It's God who gives it. God's character is even reflected in how he gives wisdom. The Proverbs are full of the commands and the reminders to us to seek wisdom above all else. It's greater than gold. It's greater than silver. We're also to ask because we lack faith. Let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that's driven and tossed about. Here's the fourth imperative. Not only do we ask for wisdom, but we are to ask in faith. You should ask is how it should be translated. You should ask in faith, not doubting. A doubting person is spiritually unstable. He's like the waves in the sea. A wave in the sea is without rest. It just keeps coming. It keeps coming. So is the doubter. A wave of the sea is unstable, so is the doubter. A wave of the sea is driven by winds, so is the doubter. Every wind of doctrine drives the doubter. A wave of the sea is capable of great destruction. And let me tell you, so is a doubter in God's family. For this person should not suppose that he would receive anything from the Lord. That's command number five. You must not suppose that you will receive anything. You see, people, we, we want to have one foot in the world, one foot of doing it our way, and one foot over here saying, oh, I'm going to trust God. That's a double-minded person. You can't have one foot in the world and one foot in faith. It's one or the other. Are you going to trust God or are you going to trust the world? If you do that, if you trust, if you're double-minded, you're, you're two-souled. Somebody has said the man of two souls has one for the earth and one for the world, or one for, the, for heaven. But he wishes to secure both of them. Fifth, we notice that we should maintain a biblical perspective. Look at verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. You say, what in the world is that doing in this chapter. How does that fit into this discussion here about trials and trusting in the Lord? Well, as we notice in this passage, he's saying the poor man, what, what does the poor man have to trust in? Nothing. Nothing but the grace of God. Nothing but his position in Christ. And so he trusts in that He contemplates the glory of his position in Christ. If you are poor, he's saying you should boast in the fact that your circumstances are actually leading you to trust God more. But what about the rich man? On the other hand, trials remind the rich man that his money can't solve his problems. And all the stuff that you fill your life with cannot cover up your hurts if you're a rich man. And so here's the conclusion. So as the poor brother forgets all his earthly poverty, so the rich brother forgets all of his earthly wealth, the two realize that they are the same in Christ. They are the same in Christ. And then finally we see that rightly responding to trials brings blessing. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Does that sound, like, sound familiar? Blessed. Remember we said last week that a lot of James you find in the Beatitudes? This is a blessing. You see perseverance, he says here, if you persevere, it brings blessing. It sounds like Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, which he delights day and night. And then Saul, and then the, the Beatitudes, we see all the, the blessings that are mentioned there. Blessing comes to us when we respond properly to trials. Then also there's perseverance that we have bears proof that we are truly children of God. He will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. This is a reminder that God has promised eternal life to those who've trusted in Christ. Part of understanding of if we trust in Christ is that we love God. We love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. That's evidence that we are a child of God. And he's saying here that putting our faith into practice means we persevere under trials, we respond properly, and it proves our love for God and his love for us and that he produces steadfastness and maturity in us. You see, this is a lot this morning for us to contemplate over trials. John Newton, the man who wrote... Amazing Grace, who had numerous trials of his own, said this, We shall see that what we once mistakenly called afflictions and misfortune were in reality blessings without which we would not have grown in our faith. Nothing happened to us without reason. No problem came upon us sooner, pressed on us more heavily, or continued longer than our situation required god in his divine grace and wisdom used our many afflictions each as needed that we might ultimately possess an exceeding and eternal weight of glory prepared by the lord for his people you know what john newton is saying the very same thing james has said god has a purpose in our trials So here's the application, and by way of application, I want to close with just a story. How many of you have ever read any of Andrew Murray's books on prayer? A lot of you, right? Old classics. Well, Andrew Murray had a a severe back problem. He was staying in the upstairs of of a home, and someone in one of the lower floors heard that he was there, and they asked the hostess, would you ask Mr. Murray about how to handle trials. I'm going through a difficult trial in my life and I don't know what to do. So while at breakfast, Andrew Murray penned out some words and he sent them to this, to this lady. And in summary, this is basically what he said. He said, you need to understand that the trial, the testing you're going through is by God's appointment. That God has his hand on this and he is in control. Secondly, you are in this, but he is keeping you there. He's holding on to you. Third, you need to understand that whatever trial you're going through means that you are under his training, his equipping. And finally, you're going to be in that trial, that difficulty, as long as he wants you to be in it. Those were his words to this lady. And that we would do well to heed those instructions when we face a trial is to know that what we are in, whatever trial we're in, it's not catching God off guard at all. He is sovereign and He's in control. Also, He has promised to keep you in the midst of that. He is also the one that's teaching you and training you. And He will not deliver you out of that trial any earlier or any later than you need to be delivered out of it. Because he has a work to accomplish in you. You see, folks, in the end, we we know there is no trial, no, no disease, no death that can steal away our salvation. No matter what happens, we win. We have the promise of eternal life to those who love him. Let's bow our heads together. I ask our staff and wives to come up and student leaders to come and just stand here across the front. And folks, in just a minute, we're going to stand together, and I'm going to just ask you to stand with your, with your heads bowed. But if God has put it on your heart that you just want to pray with somebody, you need somebody to pray for you, just step out, excuse yourself, come on down here and let, let folks pray for you. If you need to come this morning, you say, Pastor, I'm not sure if I'm even saved. Would you come this morning and let me or one of our counselors talk to you about that? If you need to come to join this church, this will be the time for you to respond and do that as well. But I want this to be a time of, of ministry for us, that we pray for one another. You don't need to know who comes down here. But if you need to come and you want somebody to pray for you, or maybe you have somebody you're burdened about. I just got word a few days ago, one of our dear friends... One of our supervisors has gotten a diagnosis of cancer. And that's heavy on my heart today, dear friend. Some of you in this room, you've gotten that diagnosis. You're struggling. You may need somebody to pray for you as well. Do we believe God still heals? Yes, we do. Does God heal every time? Ultimately, he does. He either heals here or heals when we go home. But God is a healer. And it's okay to pray for healing. As long as we're willing to accept his will, whatever his will may be. So as we stand in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to respond. Uh, The the team up here is going to to lead us. You don't need to sing. Just pray. If you need to come forward, you come and let let somebody pray for you. Father, thank you for this time. And Father, we pray our freedom and our service that people be willing to, to respond for others to pray for them. To do exactly what the scripture says, that we're to pray for one another. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for watching. To find out more about Nassau Bay Baptist, subscribe to our YouTube channel, visit our website at nbbchurch.com.